0: Well, we're in Mark chapter 13. We continue our thoughts on the Olivet Discourse. Now, you'll remember that in the first message, I likened it to one of Claire's Lego things. The first message was looking at the box and deciding, man, this is going to be something good to get into, okay? The second message was us laying out all the different packs of pieces and getting everything organized and looking at the instructions. But now, in these next couple of messages, we're going to start putting the project together, Okay, now admit it last week started off a little bit slow I could see you know y'all were y'all were fighting the good fight to stay with me But then as we got into it, it picked up some speed now I'm hoping that we maintain that speed moving into these messages moving forward. Okay Because this is the most fun part is putting the thing together and so, uh, let's just get some real quick Um review there's three basic views as to how to interpret and apply uh, these, uh, this discourse, you have the preterist view that believes that that uh, Jesus is describing everything that will happen from the, dist- uh, up until the, dr- st- this happens to me in class and the kids just laugh at me because they're mean. The destruction of Jerusalem, okay, so this is from AD 29 to AD 70, and there's some, there's some pretty impressive theologians that take the preterist view, but with all due respect, they're wrong, okay? And most of them are already in heaven, so they know they're wrong. The futurist view that sees most or all of the discourse is taking place in what we would call the end times future. But the, the position that I think is the, the best option is what we call the hybrid view that this discourse references events that will take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and then in varying degrees throughout the church age, but it really focuses on the tribulation and what will be fulfilled in the reign of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we, the first message was background and introduction. And we talked about a mistaken perspective, and we talked about the master's prediction and the meeting in private. And then we focused on Matthew 24. Now, we're going to do our best to stay in In Mark tonight, but're we 're going to have to pull from it, at least Matthew and maybe Luke throughout these messages because these these gospels um, these gospels supplement one another, and we don 't want to leave anything out and matthew twenty four verse three gives us the most complete uh, question that is asked. We learn from this verse that uh, that the question is threefold. Mark kind of combines the last two questions. But this question is threefold. And as Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, the disciples being Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Okay. They came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so we've got the three questions. When shall these things be, what is the sign of thy coming, and what is the sign of the end of the world? of the world. And and with the Lord's help, we're going to use these three as our three main points moving forward. These three questions. Okay. And remember this, multiple questions usually involve multiple answers. And Jesus gives them multiple answers. And then last week we talked about principles for proper interpretation. And we talked about hermeneutics, the science and art of understanding, translating, and explaining the meaning of a scripture text. And we gave some principles to work off. Number one, secure your proper context. Secure your proper context. Uh, grammatical, historical, canonical, and literary, and so forth. Number two, when at all possible, look for a plain and obvious meaning. Don't make something complicated that's not meant to be complicated. Okay? Number three, and, and I changed this one, and if you take a note, you might want to change it. Rather than define your audiences, I changed it to determine your audiences. Okay, determine your audiences. Know who's being speaking to, who's to whom is being determine your audience. Hmm. Man. Then compare scripture with scripture. The Bible is its own best commentary. Don't ever forget that. And then define your terms. Okay. So now, Mark chapter 13. I don't think we're going to get any farther than verse 13 if we get that far. So let's begin reading in verse number five, Mark chapter 13. And we're going to begin with the first question. Once again, taken from Matthew 24, verse three, the first question serves as our first main point. When shall these things be? When shall these things be? Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse number five. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. It's interesting, if you've got a Bible like mine, you'll notice that the word Christ, the name Christ is in italics, which implies a couple of things, but most notably, they're just saying, I am. What a blasphemous thing. What a blasphemous thing. Verse 7, when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. And when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate. But But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death and the father, the son and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Father, I I need your help. I always know that I need your help when I preach and when I teach, but it is especially real to me tonight. This is a, a difficult passage. And uh, I want to rightly divide it, so I pray that you'd help me to do that. Um, Lord, may I be clear. It would be very easy for me to get convoluted in my speech. I, I pray that I wouldn't. Would you help me to be clear in my teaching? And, Lord, may it be applicable. May our people be able to take this and use it and put it to work even right now. So, Lord, just, just have, your, have your will and way in, in, in your word tonight and in this message and in our time together. And may Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Now, it's important to know that that when they they ask this question, when shall these things be, contextually, they're asking specifically about the destruction of the temple. That's what Jesus has just told them. There's not going to be one stone left upon another, and they want to know about that, which is typical, not just for the disciples, but typical for all of us. It's pretty short-sighted, isn't it? They put way too much trust and pride in that temple and what they believe it's going to be used for. Even now, they've not quite shook this idea that Jesus isn't going to establish His kingdom right now. Oh, it's, something's going. To, some, we're not getting it right. Something's going to turn around. He's going to do it. They still haven't quite gotten it. And so they're asking specifically about the destruction of the temple. And of course, as he often does with them and with us, Jesus answers them with more information than with that for which they asked. He gives them way more to consider. Okay, Now, I've got here verses 5 through 13. But I want to I give you just a thought. I believe personally, and this isn't something that we've got to part ways over, but I believe personally there's a very good possibility that verses 5 through 8 do deal specifically with that time period, A.D. 29 to A.D. 70, okay? I do think that you could probably bracket those verses off, okay? Let's look at what he says, verse number 5. And Jesus answering them, these four disciples, began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For, there, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Did that stuff take place from 29 to 70? Yes, it did. All right. Verse number seven, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Did that take place from 29 to 70? Oh, yeah. Um. In fact, interesting statistic. And I'm I'm leaning on another man's research, but it's been said, and it sounds about right to me, that in the last 3,000 years of recorded history, in the last 3,000 years of recorded history, there's only been 268 years that have been without war somewhere. You know what that is? That's 7%. That's a lot of war. Matthew mentions famines and pestilence. Were there famines and pestilence from AD 29 to AD 70? Yeah. In fact, Acts mentions one in particular that would that would overtake Jerusalem. Okay. So all of these things happened during this time. So there certainly is a case to be made that Jesus is speaking about this period of time in verses 5 through 8. But understand one of the principles we talked about last week that when do we know when to apply what Jesus says to another audience? When it is confirmed in the rest of the New Testament, like the Great Commission. Yeah, he was speaking to those on the Mount of Olives, but does the rest of the New Testament confirm that we're to spread the gospel? Yeah, it does. And so from that same mindset, we can look at verses 5 through 8 and say, yeah, that was from 29 to 70, but are those things still taking place today? And the answer is yes. Yes. We're in the middle of wars and rumors of wars right now. Now, broadening, broadening a little bit, verses 5 through 8 may be covering 80, 29 to 70, but certainly verses 5 through 13 cover what we call the church age. Leading into, now listen carefully to this, leading into the first half of of the tribulation. Okay. Now let me take a step back, verses five through thirteen. The there are some that say that there can't be any church in this. This is this is Matthew was a, is a Jewish gospel. Mark is, is 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 writing alongside of that. The audience is Jewish. You can't find the church anywhere in here. This is predominantly a Jewish message. And I agree with that, but I don't think that that does away with glimpses of the church. And the best way I know to analogize that would be this. Let's say that, uh, oh, I don't know, let's say Miss Bobby bought a new car. And it was custom, start to finish. She's got Corinthian leather seats. And I mean... She, uh, did this go out? Hmm. Well, let's see what's going on here. Well, it shouldn't be. They're dead. Anybody have a word? (laughs) I'm going to go, uh, Grab two more. Okay? Talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right back. All right, we got it now? Good. Great. <clears throat> okay. So, Miss Bobby, let's talk about her car. It's custom. And she gets on that car a metallic paint job. And when, that, when the sun hits that thing, the flecks just just sparkle. So you would agree that there's a predominant color. What's your favorite color for a car, Miss Bobby? Blue. All right, it's a beautiful, shall we say, like an ocean blue or something. just a beautiful blue. But it's metallic. So there's flecks, usually of gold, in there. I think that's how we need to view the Olivet Discourse. There's a predominant color that's meant for the Jews. But all through it, there's flecks of the church, and it sparkles. You know they're there. You see it there, but you still have to treat it as a Jewish message. Does that make sense? Well, it sure did to me when I thought of it. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Something else just to, to throw out there for future reference. A mistake may be a, too harsh of a word, But for lack of a better one, I think we make a mistake when we view the tribulation as a seven-year block. Because there are nuances, and the biggest of which is that that halfway point in the tribulation. And we need to see it as being divisible. Um, We understand that anybody that goes into the tribulation, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible, and it is going to outpace anything this earth has seen up to that point. But even within that, the first half is going to be a cakewalk compared to the second half. The second half is going to be all the worse. And so this, pa- this part of the passage, verses 5 through 13, is taking us through the church age and into that first half of the tribulation. Okay, So it takes us through what takes place in the lifetimes of the disciples, but it continues through the church age. Now what some people do is they read this passage and they mistakenly think that this speaks to the rapture, that the signs of the rapture are wars and rumors of wars and pestilence. Well, those things have been going on since 29 AD, that they've always been in place. They've always been there. So you can't make that connection. look at verse number seven. Look at what Jesus says, and when ye hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled troubled for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. He's not saying this is what you look for for the end. He says specifically. This is leading up to it, but the end isn't here yet. See, So, so we, can't, we can't put this alongside the rapture. He says in verse 5, not to be deceived. So now, remember, we talked about defining our terms. So let's define the term, the end. When he says the end is not yet, we need to understand what the end is. Okay? Well... The word that they use there is the Greek word telos. Now, what's interesting about that is that it's very specific. It doesn't just mean the end. It means the very end, the end of the end, okay? Now, this is not to be confused with aeon that shows up in Matthew 28, 20. You remember? Remember? Um, uh, all power is given me in heaven and earth uh, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo, I will be with you always, even way even until the, until the end of the world aeon which can also be translated age anybody all know? All right. age okay that's not talking about what he's talking about here. Those are two different concepts. What what is the end of the age that Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission? Well, let's let's think this through. Let's that's mighty close. Let's think this through. All right. Jesus says that he'll be with us even to the end of the world, to the end of the age. How does he accomplish that? Holy Spirit, right? Okay. When does the Holy Spirit leave? Rapture. So, what's the end of the age? The end of the church age. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world, the end of the church age. Amen. So, it's not the same thing. He's not talking about the rapture, he's talking about something beyond the rapture. Everybody with me? I'm getting that same look I got last week. Don't worry, it picks up. Okay. All right. I believe that telos, the end, refers to a point beyond the rapture, I would say, to the glorious appearing and millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Okay. Another term we want to define, and that's in verse 8. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be Earthquakes in diverse places, there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Okay. Why I believe that this signals the beginning of the tribulation is that term, the beginning of Sorrows. The word sorrows there is very specific. It refers to a specific type of sorrow, one that many of you ladies have endured. And that is the sorrow of the pangs of childbirth. Okay. Now let's let's follow the analogy. Um, these birth pangs precede the arrival of the king of kings. The tribulation here is being referred to as the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of, could we put it this way, birth pangs, all right, leading to the arrival of the Son. You see how the analogy is fitting together? All right, so let me try and put this out here. All right, so let's say that... When, when you ladies have, have had a baby, and I'm speaking clinically and anecdotally because obviously I have not experienced any part of that, the closest I've come is sympathy cravings. That's the closest I've come to anything y'all may have been through. All right. But uh, was it 40 weeks? The average pregnancy is 40 weeks, right? Okay. And though, yes, I know that there are constant moments of discomfort, and difficulty and even Braxton Hicks and things like that the actual birth pangs the actual contractions leading to birth relatively come where at the end of the of the pregnancy right You don't get them to start off with, they come at the end. And so you've got 40 weeks leading up to this, and then you've got a relative, it doesn't feel that way to you, but you had a relatively short period of time within that whole process leading to the arrival of the child, right? Okay? Everybody agree with that so far? All right. Now this is in a natural setting without C-sections or anything like that, okay? Now think about this. The church age, at its very shortest, is 1,994 years long. If Jesus came back today, from Pentecost in AD 29 to 2023, you're looking at about 1,994 years. Do your math. I've checked it twice. Okay. At the shortest, now, the longer Jesus goes without coming back the longer the church age gets so you look at something like a seven year tribulation and you think to yourself man alive that's a long labor that's a long long time to be in birth pangs leading to the arrival but think about it think about 1,994 years all the way up to seven years leading to the arrival of the sun it's actually not very much oh it's going to be horrible. But compared to the whole of church history, those seven years are a short span of time. So the analogy works. These seven years are the beginning of sorrows and they will be sorrowful. They will be horrible. They will be terrible. But let me tell you something. They will be remedied when the sun arrives. Just like you ladies, you can can testify. Oh, It was horrible. I hated my husband. I questioned why are we having children. What in the world? But when you held that baby, and the Bible bears this out, what happens? You forget all that. Everything that you went through, you forget all that because you're holding that baby. Let me tell you what's going to happen there's going to be some people who are going to, listen to some terrible stuff particularly the jews which is the tribulation is all all meant for them and they'll look on him whom they pierced and all of a sudden the arrival of the son is going to right everything see so that's why i believe that this speaks to the church age moving into the tribulation because of the terminology that they use oh by the way just like with the tribulation birth pains get worse the closer you get to arrival right tribulation is going to get worse the closer you get to the arrival of the sun now let's look at verses 11 and 12 i know i don't have a bunch of slides for you and all that i just i didn't i didn't have to outline this thing figured we'd just go through it verse by verse Verses 11 and 12. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do you premeditate. But whatsoever shall uh, shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak with the Holy Ghost. Uh, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. That does take place from 29 to 70, but does it not also take place through the church age, and will it take place in the tribulation as well? And the answer is yes. Yes. There will be people turning in their family members to, make, to curry favor with Antichrist. There sure will. And so this revisits the persecution that will befall the people of God, mostly Jews, during the tribulation. I don't want to spend a lot of time there because I want to go back to verse number 10. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Does this mean that the rapture can't happen until the gospel has been preached to everyone? The answer is no. The answer is no. That flies in the face of the, the idea of an imminent return of Christ. If if there's still things that have to happen, then his return isn't imminent. The rapture isn't imminent. So what's it talking about? I believe that this refers to the evangelistic efforts throughout the tribulation. You say, wait a minute. Can people be saved during the tribulation? The answer is yes, with qualifications. I don't have this in my notes, but let's do it anyway. Maybe. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter two. Where does God draw the line of who can and can't get saved in the tribulation? I think this gives us our answer. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse number three. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. What day is that? Day of the Lord. And that man of sin be revealed. Who's the man of sin? That's Antichrist, the son of perdition. I left that apart. Except there come a falling away first. Now, some people ascribe that to apostasy, and we're certainly there. But good theologians like G. Campbell Morgan said that that could refer to the rapture. It's a neat thought. We'll not get into it tonight. That man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Talking about Antichrist who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We're going to see that later in our passage. It's called the abomination of desolation. Okay, all right. Now, verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity, verse 7, doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. What in the world does that mean in King James English? Here's what it means. There is somebody here now who letteth, who restrains sin. His name is the Holy Ghost. He restrains evil. But it says that he's going to be taken out of the way. Okay? He's going to be taken out of here. And then after he's gone, then the Antichrist is going to be revealed and evil will not be restrained. That's one of the reasons the tribulation is so horrible. Okay? So when is the Antichrist revealed? After the rapture. So that means the Holy Spirit has to leave at the rapture. Now, wait a minute. That's how Jesus promised that he'd always be with me. So if he fulfills that promise by saying, Lord, I'm with thee always, and he does that through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in me, and the Holy Spirit has to leave, then it stands to reason to me that i got to go too. Y'all follow all that? That's why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I don't believe the people of God will be here for not a second of it. Now, I've got friends that believe in that we're going to go through half of it. Well, hang around if you want, but I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Okay, now let's keep going. Verse 8, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Doesn't mean he'd be born. He could already be here now, but he'll be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Now listen to the second half of verse 10. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So from verses 10 through 12, what I take from that is that the people Who are given over to a strong delusion are people who heard the truth, understood it, and rejected it. If you've heard the gospel, understood it, and rejected it, and the rapture happens, I'm using biblical terminology here, you're damned. You're finished. You got no hope. But are there not scores of millions of people in this world that have never heard the name of Christ? that have never heard the truth to reject it. I believe that those people have the opportunity to be saved in the tribulation. If they don't, then pray tell me, why does God send out evangelists if no one can be saved? Well, what are you talking about evangelists? Who's going to be witnessing? Well, for starters, Revelation 7 and 14, we've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Well, if nobody can be saved, then what are they doing? We've got two witnesses in Revelation 11 that nobody knows who they are except me and Brother Earl. We know who they are. <laughs> okay. What are they doing? Among other things, they're giving the gospel. And then if that doesn't help, Revelation 14, you got an angel that just flies around screaming the gospel. So all this gospel witness and nobody can be saved, it strikes me that... Somebody's going to get saved in the tribulation, right? So back to Mark chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. I think what that's saying is before Jesus comes back and establishes his reign, that this is going to take place and that during these things, the 144,000 witnesses, the angel, the two witnesses, that everybody will hear the gospel. And sadly, many will yet reject it. All right. Then verse 13. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now that that falls back into the persecution. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What is Jesus saying here? Our friends that Embrace Reformed Theology, and I do have friends that I love that Embrace Reformed Theology, uh, they would tell you that this speaks to one of their doctrines called the Perseverance of the Saints. Now let me make this clear because at some point one of my Calvinist friends is going to watch this. Folks that Embrace Reformed Theology on the whole love God, they love His Word, they make much of His sovereignty, they make much of Scripture, and I appreciate that. In the matter of their Five points of Calvinism, I disagree with them, but I don't question their love for the Lord. I just, I think they, they've, they've got a faulty view of salvation, okay, and we can fuss about that on our own time. But the perseverance of the saints, a lot of people think that that just teaches that once you're saved, you're always saved, and it's the same thing as eternal security, but it's not. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, if you ever hear this term, remember, we got to make sure we define our terms. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teaches that if you're truly saved, you'll persevere to the end. You'll never fall away. And if you ever fall away from your faith, then you were never saved to begin with. Problem with it is the Bible doesn't bear that out. The Bible doesn't bear that out. David fell away a couple times. Samson Lot, to some degree Peter, and where do, we, where do we define falling away? How far away from God do you got to get before you fell away? You know? But that's not what this is teaching at all. This isn't talking about salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're saved, there's consequences for falling away from God. There's consequences. There's chastening, and perhaps even a premature death. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches once you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do after that, you're still saved. You cannot sin away your grace. Okay. What's he talking about then? Well, he's been talking about the persecution against the Jews primarily during the tribulation. I think all he's saying is once again, let's read it, verse 13. He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He's saying that those folks that make it through the tribulation, that make it through the fury of Antichrist, if you make it through, if you, en- you endure, you'll be delivered. You'll be saved, physically speaking. I don't think he's talking about spiritual. So we've unpacked this first question. They only asked him, When shall these things, the destruction of the temple, be? And Jesus then takes them all the way into the midpoint of the tribulation. So next week, with the Lord's help, we move into the second question. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And what that's talking about is we're in the tribulation. How do we know when you're coming back? Even if they didn't know how to frame it quite like that, that's what he's going to answer. The signs of his coming is not talking about the rapture. It's talking about when he sets foot back on this planet and sets up his millennial reign. And so part four, and we might get to him, we'll see is what shall be the sign of thy coming. That takes us, that takes us through the second half of the tribulation. And then the third question, what shall be the sign of the end of the world that takes us into the glorious appearing and the millennial reign. And, uh, and that'll get us through the that'll get us through the Olivet discourse. And then after that, we got some parables. <laughs> Those are fun too. All right. So we'll stop there for tonight.